Yankees Files podcast. I'm Will Harris. You're Alec Whipple. The rest of you are not either of us, but I have a sneaking suspicion you're pretty happy with the five and one week that the Yankees just went on. They swept the Blue Jays in Buffalo. They came home to take two of three from the first place Oakland A's. It is fully hot Gary summer. Whipple, tell me what you're seeing from this team. I am loving it. I'm loving this team. I think this is the best week of Yankees baseball we've watched. And not for the reason that the pitching was fantastic or the offense was scoring 15 runs a game. It was just for the fact that they've started to look like a team that's actually going to compete this year. I mean, every single game this week they came back in. Five wins, or except for the game that they lost, I suppose. But every single one of their wins, they came back. Five wins, five comeback wins. We saw some late-inning homers. We saw some late-inning clutch hits. And on the defensive side, we saw some late-inning magic as well. But the fact of the matter is the Yankees can hit or pitch all they want, but a winning team has to be able to put up a fight in games that they're trailing. And the Yankees did that this week against two very good teams. I am thrilled. Five and one on the week. Comeback wins in every win. Three of those on the road. Two of those against a first-place team. Whipple, I couldn't agree more. This is the best week of baseball that we've seen from this team. They were nine games out in the division, and now they're four and a half out with a chance to go to Boston this weekend and take the division lead. Can you believe that? No, I can't. And I think that, I mean, obviously um, making up four and a half games in a week is crazy when you're not even playing either of the teams. And so this half streak is timed pretty well with the Rays losing all six games, including getting swept by the Mariners. Just like to point out that the Mariners are bad and the Rays are supposedly good. So make of that what you will. The Red Sox didn't have a great week. The Yanks had a great week. This is what can happen in baseball. Things can turn around very quickly. And the Yankees, again, they played two very good teams. This wasn't beating up on the bottom feeders of the league. Toronto is a wild card AL East contender. Oakland was leading the West until Houston's hot streak. I mean, these are the kind of teams that we've said all year the Yankees need to show that they can beat. And I think... One other thing is they've, you know, they've had good moments this year. They've swept the White Sox. They've, they've won a two out of three against the Astros. But like I said, nothing has seemed as, not, I mean, I don't like to use the word gritty or, you know, this is a tough team. You know, every team looks really good when they're winning. But the Yankees just haven't shown that fight this year. It's like when they're up, they're going to stay up. And when they're behind, they're going to stay behind. And when they were winning before, they just got off to leads and held it with their pitching. This was something different. And given that, and given the timing of the Rays and Red Sox struggles, like you said, they're going to have a chance to go into Fenway this week, and if not take the lead, at least be within striking distance to make this a division race again. And again, nine games out last week. Who would have thought that things would turn around this quickly? Optimism is great, but eventually the team has to come through, and I'm sure glad that they picked this week to come through. Now, Whipple, you have to assume that since the Rays have lost six games in a row and got swept in a four-game series by the Mariners that, you know, they're going to be, because they're a serious and well-run and smart organization, they're going to be firing Heim Bloom and Kevin Cash, right? Well, you know, as well as trading Wander Franco um, after he's shown any amount of promise as the number one prospect in baseball just called up to the Rays if you weren't familiar. So I'm sure we can expect to see him on another team pretty soon, you know, early uh, career extensions. Those aren't cheap. It's actually being widely reported, story broken, of course, by YankeesFiles.com, that Wander Franco is the player to be named later in the Mike Ford trade. So that's pretty exciting. Yankees pick up the number one prospect in the game to play shortstop. Big loss in Mike Ford, though. Uh, You can't say enough about the occasional home run he'd hit every two weeks. Look, I mean, uh, the Rays obviously win the trade. Um even though the Yankees come away with Franco, we're joking, of course. Um, the player, yes, the player joking. to be named later is uh, is Tyler Glass. Now, um, <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't keep doing this. Look, Whipple. Uh, yeah, you, I, I think you're exactly right. Uh, and you got at something important there just before we dive into this Blue Jays series. The top two teams in the AL West are the Astros and the A's. The Yankees are four and two against them. The top two teams in the Central are the White Sox and Indians, and the Yankees are 6-1 against them. The Yankees are 10-3 against the top two teams in the Central and the West, and they're 5-8 against the Rays and Red Sox, and that's why everyone thinks that they're an average or mediocre, disappointing team. They just haven't played 
the Red Sox or Rays that well yet. And they are four and three in their last seven against the Rays. That's relevant. Um, and they've right. only played and three games against the Red Sox. Um, so they're right. going to figure exactly. something out. Are you going to talk about 2009? Please talk about 2009. I, I will because you mentioned it. But I, I just want to emphasize the point that you just said. They, they've really had two bad series against these teams. They've had a terrible sweep in April against the Rays where we all thought the world was going to end. And we, they had a terrible sweep against the Red Sox a few weeks ago where we all thought the world was going to end. Again, they have five series against the Red Sox left. The other three series against the Rays, they lost two out of three, won two out of three, and split. I mean, these are basically six games that everyone's keying into. Right now against the Blue Jays, they've even their record against the Blue Jays. And against the Orioles, they have a winning record. So right now, I think people are keying into, you know, obviously it's not great. They have not played great against the Red Sox and Rays. But I don't think it's the end of the world because they have a lot of time left to make up that record. Leading to 2009, we've seen a lot of comparisons on the internet of a team that similarly started slow, a team that started 0-8 against the Red Sox. They were winless through the first three series, and talk about the world ending. I mean, people were ready to fire everyone, you know, cast off A-Rod and uh, CeCe Sabathia into the sun, and that team ended up coming back and just absolutely dominating the Red Sox that summer. I mean, so many great memories of games in Fenway and Yankee Stadium, and you know, it just shows the second half of the year is where the, you know, the important games are. And luckily for the Yankees, they're going to have a ton of games against the Red Sox and six more against the Rays. And it's interesting because right now, the you know, if you weren't aware, the Rays are not actually in first anymore. Um, so we'll see if that continues. The Red Sox could be back to being the team to beat, which would be better for the Yankees, given, again, they have five separate series left against them. But 2009, same scenario. And we remember how good that team was. God, that was... I could reminisce about 2009 all day. The fact that they just went on that absolute tear against Boston. And let's not forget the greatest video in YouTube history, which has since been taken down, uh, when Teixeira and Damon hit back-to-back homers in, I believe it was the eighth inning of a game against the Red Sox at Yankee Stadium late that summer. Someone took the John Sterling call and auto-tuned it of him saying to Sharon and Damon go back to back and belly to belly. And it was, it was the greatest video in YouTube history. And I so, so sincerely regret that I can't find it anymore. But anyway, yeah. And I also, I also want to shout out the 15 inning one to nothing game that immediately was maybe a few games before that a game that would probably not be possible in the Manford ball era, but um, just the, one of the most thrilling games of that year ending with a rods home run off Junichi Tazawa major league debut of Tazawa and A-Rod took him yard in the 15th um, just you know thanks Rob Manfred for taking away one of the most fun games of uh, Yankees Red Sox history we love you <laughs> we love you Rob Manfred um, if by love we mean despise and hope that you never get to make another decision that affects the game of baseball again anyway Whipple the Yankees swept a series in Buffalo against the Blue Jays a team that they came into the series trailing in the division Walk us through it. Yeah, so I think everyone last Monday, uh, certainly on our last pod, were rightly concerned, as we were probably for the last few weeks, about things with the Yankees after they got swept by the Phillies and blew a chance to sweep the Twins. Um, And they came into Buffalo and playing in front of a crowd that was pretty favorable to them, which I think is pretty cool. Uh, the, The Buffalo fans mostly being Yankees fans, even though they live technically closer to Toronto. So it was like a a home crowd on the road, kind of like a Camden Yards atmosphere. And the Yankees came back in three straight games. I think the first two were probably the more uh, notable of the comebacks, although the last one had some certainly exciting moments, which we'll get to later. Um, But yeah, so in the first game, they were down five to two and leading to what I was talking about before, they, you know, everybody was doom you know, doomsaying and the end is here, fire, again, fire everyone. And really, who could blame them? This team hasn't shown much of an ability to come back. But they were they were down 5-2, and they came back. They won a game in which they allowed five or more runs, which was their second time doing so all year. And honestly, I'll give it to them the first legitimate time because the first time they gave up four runs in garbage time. So it was they allowed more than five runs, but for most of the game, they hadn't. Uh, this was a legitimate comeback victory. And uh, it all started with uh, Gary Sanchez home run. Um, and I know we're going to talk about Gary. We're, we're always going to talk about Gary. But first, I want to talk about 
the uh, some of the other players in this game because uh, some of them got some of them are no longer with the Yankees. They were sent down. Uh, some of them have been with the Yankees a long time. They Brett Gardner and previous player being Chris Gittins. Um, so you know thoughts about some of the the cast of characters in this game. We had a Gardner homer, a Gittins homer, and then a Clint Frazier uh, pinch hit double. Uh, I don't know if you have any assorted thoughts just on some of these players who haven't been having the best years, having some some key hits and big spots, which is really unlike this year's Yankees, where players who are not having great years usually are failing to get hits in key spots. It it really was wild. I mean, we're talking about Chris Gittens, who in his <laughs> 10 games as a Yankee produced a weighted runs created plus of 24 uh, going yard. We're talking about... Clint Frazier, who had been relegated to the bench in favor of Miguel Andujar's, uh, you know, couple weeks stretch of hot hitting, uh, coming in and ripping that double. We're talking about Brett Gardner going Yardner. I mean, it was of all the, <laughs> at the risk of sounding like Susan Waldman, of all the dramatic and unexpected things that could happen in this game, we really, we really got them all and. Whipple, what this game kicked off that obviously we didn't know at the time was a stretch of Aaron Boone doing some incredibly good strategic decision making. Yeah, it was a great week for Aaron Boone. Um, and in the series preview, I actually had written up uh, a little a, a thought amusing before the game, just thinking about what the Yankees were going to do with Aaron Boone, should he be fired? I am certainly in the camp of he should not be fired. I don't think managerial changes midseason are worth anybody's time. But I think after the past few weeks, it's fair to say, was he doing the right thing? Was he properly invested in this team? Was he the right man for the job? And again, you know, a, a manager looks bad when his team's not doing well. He looks great when his team's doing well. But I think there was really some conclusive evidence this week that Aaron Boone was pushing the right buttons uh, in pinch hitting, which I think is one of the greatest uh, impacts a manager can have. Uh, we had Clint Frazier's pinch hit go-ahead double. We had Gary Sanchez's pinch hit home run, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. And we had a Chris Gittens pinch hit, um, some RBIs in the third game of the series. And that's basically pushing the right button. And it's, it's pretty cool to see that impact, I think, because... Um, it shows you what just what the manager can do. And, you know, it might just be nothing more than getting lucky. You know, I'm not willing to give him too much credit. I'm not willing to give him too much blame. But I think you could say Aaron Boone, you know, he, he was sleeping a little easier this week. And uh, one thing I want to flash forward to while we're talking about Boone is he was ejected from um, Saturday's game in the ninth inning, uh, arguing the strike zone. And I didn't really feel like that was a, a moment that really merited ejection. The Yankees were winning and uh, it wasn't, you know, they're winning by a few runs. It wasn't such a high-pressure situation like the few weeks ago against the Red Sox. But it felt like Aaron Boone was trying to show everyone. It almost seemed like a demonstration. Like, hey, everyone, like, I'm in this. Like, I'm here for you. Like, this is my team. Um, I don't know if he, you know, if that was actually it. But it, it just seemed more like a symbolic ejection rather than actually being angry. Do, do you agree with that? Yeah, I, I definitely think there's something to that. I think that there's been a lot of discussion this year of Aaron Boone kind of insufficiently standing up for his guys. There was, of course, the notable moment when Carlos Mendoza or Carlos Mendoza and Phil Nevin both got thrown out and Aaron Boone didn't. Um, you know, it's uh, I, I think you could be on to something because, you know, as we'll get to. They were up by a few runs. It was the last inning. Aroldis Chapman walks people all the time. Were the calls by the umpire pretty bad? Yes. Um, but it, it wasn't what we expected out of Aaron Boone. You know, if you think back to the Savages in the box rant, you know, that was early in the game. Normally, if he's going to be on these guys, he's on these guys early. Um, and he tends not to be, you know, sent off by just one uh, one event. Uh, but in this case, all it took was one at bat for him to say, no, I've, I've seen enough. And yeah, I think it was, uh, look, guys, I got your back. Um, we're in this together. I'm going to stand up for you. Uh, you go out there and play. And definitely, uh, I could definitely see him using that as a bit of a motivational tactic. Yeah. And I think that whatever, whatever it was, I think it was definitely appreciated by people who felt he wasn't doing enough earlier. So great week for Boone, uh, great series opener for the Yankees. And 
uh, we're let's talk about game two. I think uh, the story of this game, <laughs> it's time. We we've you know built this up for a while. If you follow our blog, you know that this is our our um, the the hill that we will die on. And I think we're gonna die pretty successfully because it is the summer of Gary Sanchez. It's hot Gary summer. Gary was the hero in this game. I'm just gonna throw this to you. It's time for Gary conversation. What do you want to say? Oh my gosh, Whipple. I, when I tell you I've been looking forward to recording this podcast for exactly this reason. It's hot Gary summer, man. It's in full effect. So we got, you know, some some serious play on Twitter uh, earlier today. Uh, we had our most successful tweet of all time pointing out that since May 27th, which was the second game of the doubleheader against Toronto, Gary Sanchez is hitting 344, 408, 719 for a 1 dot 127 OPS and a 202 weighted runs created plus. That's 102% better than league average. So you might think, well, Will, how how good is this in the career of Gary Sanchez? You know, those are 20 good games, but has he ever had 20 games this good? This is where it gets interesting, Whipple. And this is what I love most about this 20-game stretch. Gary Sanchez does this all the time. All the time. This is only the 15th best 20-game stretch of Gary's career by OPS. 15th! I mean, come on. It's only 8th by batting average. It's 17th by on base. It's 18th by slugging. Like, Gary Sanchez has been doing this. And the whole reason that Hot Gary Summer made sense and the whole reason that we were always on Twitter telling you that you should be believing in Gary Sanchez and the whole reason that I've been so vocal, you know, even before we started this blog about the fact that you should be sticking with Gary Sanchez through 2018 and through 2020 is because this is who he is. It's only the 15th best stretch of his career over 20 games. And it's the hottest stretch by a Yankee, uh, you know, that we've seen in a while. He's been the best hitter on the team since May 1st with a 146 weighted runs created plus. Uh, since Aaron Boone infamously basically alluded to the fact that he was giving the job to Kyle Higashioka, he's been 79% worse than league average. I mean, it was so easy to know that you should stick with Gary Sanchez and so easy to understand that maybe the guy who came up and had the best first 175 games of any catcher ever, um, like, of course you stick with that guy. Of course you stick with that guy. And Gary Sanchez is returning to Gary Sanchez form. And that's what this hot streak is. I talked a lot earlier in the year about how Gary Sanchez was underperforming his expected stats. Well, you know what? This hot streak has brought him in line with those. This is who Gary Sanchez is. And it's hot Gary summer, and I'm so glad that it happened. But of course we knew it was coming. And look, the best manifestation of hot Gary summer came in that second game against the Blue Jays when Garrett Cole pitched. So you know who was hitting? Kyle Higashioka. Kyle Higashioka was 0 for 2. And with a runner on in the top of the seventh, Kyle Higashioka came up after Miguel Andujar singled. Kyle Higashioka could not take that at bat. It, it, was, it would have been malpractice to allow Kyle Higashioka to take that at bat. They bring in Gary Sanchez. He quickly gets to two strikes, which is something he did in uh, his two-run double at bat against Oakland as well. And then he hit an absolute tank over everything to left field, probably hit it into Canada, at least into Niagara Falls, takes the win away from Ross Stripling, puts the Yankees up 3-2 because Gary Sanchez is an elite hitter and it's hot Gary Summer. I mean, I got all the stats. Gary Sanchez is 25% better than league average this year. The average catcher is 11% worse than league average. Gary Sanchez should be going to the All-Star game. It's hot Gary Summer. He's the hottest Yankee. He's the best Yankee hitter over the last seven weeks. I don't know. Maybe the narrative is... There was something that clicked with him when Aaron Boone said he wasn't the starter anymore. 
And thank you, Aaron Boone, for motivating him if that's what it took. But my God, this is the Gary Sanchez we know and love. This is 2016 Gary Sanchez. This is 2017 Gary Sanchez. This is 2019 Gary Sanchez. And he is an elite hitter. It's hot Gary summer. And oh my God, I was going nuts when he hit this ball. It was unbelievable. I just lost it. I love Gary Sanchez. I knew he was going to come through. And of course he did. Yeah, I mean... (laughs) hard agree with everything you just said that was a 446 home run monster shot and I think what you said what really I agree with the most is that the most impressive thing because Gary has been streaky he's he's a really streaky hitter we know when he gets hot and maybe people like to selectively remember but we the, the people who are actually watching the games know that when he gets hot he gets really hot and so you're the stats that you're reading you know, not surprising at all. That's the thing we know about Gary Sanchez. I think people talk themselves into the narrative that he is slow, lazy, and strikes out a lot. And that's just not true. But the most impressive thing, and the thing I think that, you know, really has elevated him, at least in my eyes this year, is the fact that he's doing, he, you know, on Tuesday or Wednesday's game, and also the double the other yesterday, it was a 0-2 count or a two-strike count. And he was not phased. I mean, this is a hitter who strikes out. Like, he is going to strike out. He's not the most selective hitter. But we've seen a different approach at the plate for him. And the stats back that up. His strikeout rate is down this year. His walk rate is up. And he's done that while keeping everything else in line, like his hard hit rate, his you know exit velocities. They're all at his career norms. But he's you know, he's got a better on-base percentage this year than in the past. Uh you know, his season average this year, like you said, is basically right at his career averages, a little bit above in some cases in the plate discipline. And, you know, I think that shows you he's not hitting out of his depth. He's back to where he has been for his whole career, his five-year career. And he's had some down seasons. He's had some injuries. But I think the fact is, if you look at 2020 Gary Sanchez, and you're like, this is the hitter that, you know, I'm going to say that this is the Gary Sanchez, the you know, the whole profile. This is his whole career. I mean, that's so stupid. Like, there's no other way to say that. Like, given all the caveats about 2020, the fact is he barely played more than, a, you know, 40, 50 games. I probably lost, probably more in the 40s. Um, it, you know, and, and I think so many people just want to say that's, like, that's it. Like, because it confirms their negative bias about him. And that's just such a stupid way to watch a player. And the other thing I'll say is about the Kyle Higashioka pairing. Um I'm, you know, Gary needs off days. I'm totally fine if Higashioka catches cold. And I think that, you know, given Gary's hot streak, um, it'll be interesting to see what happens tomorrow. I think they need to start DHing him when um, he's not catching. Like, I think, figure it out with the backup catcher. You know, lose the DH. I don't even care. Like, that situation that we're always afraid of where you're going to, the catcher gets injured and you lose your DH. It's such a rarity. Um, and, and they just have to figure that out. Like, they have to just say, we're going to deal with this because we cannot have Gary Sanchez out of the lineup tomorrow. So, you know, you said it's malpractice to, to have not hit Sanchez for Higashioka in that game. It's going to be malpractice if he's not playing tomorrow. And again, I'm fine if Higashioka catches Cole. And I'm even fine giving Sanchez an off day or two each week. But the, he should be getting regular DH at-bats. I think a lot of that's going to depend on if Stanton can start playing the outfield again, which, according to Stanton, he's going to do. So... I'll see it when, you know, I believe it when I see it, but that should happen. And if that doesn't happen, then, you know, something is something is wrong with the way the Yankees are constructing these lineups because he's their best hitter right now. And it's very frustrating whenever he doesn't play, which is still far too often. Yeah. So I have a couple, just a couple of responses to that. First, Gary Sanchez already has 22 more plate appearances this year than he did last year. And he was 30% worse than league average by OPS plus last year. He's been so good this year. He's been 57 percentage points better than he was last year. He's been so good this year that if you count last year and this year together, he is already league average over that period of time. Gary Sanchez is phenomenal. He's also better than league average since 2018, but you know, 89 plus 49 almost 130 of those games were in bad seasons when he was hurt or the you know bs covid season um there's a myth (coughs) there's a myth that i want to dispel about gary sanchez and the myth that i want to dispel is that gary sanchez is most successful when he's hitting the ball the opposite way all the time and look, there's there's merit to it, and especially as he gets shifted more, 
his opposite field hits become more valuable or his, you know, opposite field contact becomes more valuable. Um, Gary Sanchez's two lowest uh, opposite field hit per, or opposite field batted ball percentages came in 2016 and 2017. I just want people to be aware of that. Uh, right now, he's pulling the ball exactly as much as he did in 2017 and going the other way uh, about three percentage points more often. Um, I just want to point that out because people continue and I don't know where it came from I think it's literally from that uh double that he hit in the ALCS against Houston uh where Didi scored um people continue to say like well the best indicator of the health of Gary Sanchez is uh is if he's hitting the ball the other way last year he hit the ball the other way more than he ever had in his career and he had the worst year of his career so I don't I don't get it. I really think it's literally just people seeing that double that he hit against Houston in the ALCS and going, well, that must be what good Gary looks like. Good Gary just looks like a guy who's hitting the ball ridiculously hard and hitting a bunch of home runs. And that's what he's doing right now. Oh, I was just going to say, it's a great point with the pull hitting. I think um, something I wrote in the bottom of its column was actually looking at Glaber Torres's pull percentages, which are pretty down this year. And concurrently, he suffered a big power outage and, some you know the opposite field hitter you know is the superior hitter is not really true for a lot of hitters like pulling the ball means you're hitting it with authority you're hitting it for more power uh Aaron Judge had a problem a few years ago where he was he started to hit the ball more to all fields and his power went down um a better Gary a better Judge a better power hitter really is one who is pulling the ball to their you know hitting stronger to their pull side driving the ball with more authority and I you know I just wanted to say I couldn't agree more with that like Gary Sanchez is at best when he's launching home runs like he did on Saturday and on Wednesday to left field I love Gary Sanchez um and just one thought on the on the Cole topic and I'm interested in your perspective on this why you you want to win all of Garrett Cole's starts they're the best starts that you're going to get from anyone on your staff and he has often fallen victim to not getting enough run support. And it's stupid to give up three runs in a cold start and lose. They almost gave up two runs in a cold start and lost um, in game two against the Blue Jays. And they might have if they hadn't pinch hit Gary Sanchez. Now, I think that you want to put forth the absolute best lineup you can put forth. And if you're going to punt, go full out on punting. So why shouldn't Kyle Higashioka become the personal catcher for Mike King or Jamison Tyone? I mean, I think that's, you know, gets into the, the pitcher comfort thing. Like, I'm not going to tell Garrett Cole that he can't have Kyle Higashioka catching to him if Garrett Cole thinks that's the best way for him to win. I think that, at, you know, at some point with catchers, you know, in pitchers, we see that these two, there's pairings that just develop relationships. I'm not saying that they're better. I'm not saying they're worse. I'm saying mentally that makes them feel most comfortable. And knowing that, yes, you do have to give Gary off days. And again, I completely agree about the run support thing. I think that's why Gary should be DHing if possible. And I do think that they should start pairing them together because I, what I don't want to happen is to get to the game one of the ALDS this year and have Gary Sanchez versus Kyle Higashioka debate. Like, your point is valid. In a win-now game, put forth your best lineup. Like, I don't care if you want to, you know, give, you know, in game five or something, not of a five-game series, but in the middle of a series you know, DH Gary, play Higashioka. If that comes with Cole, so be it. But your game one lineup, your win now lineup, yes, you need you need your best guys out there. In the long grind of a regular season, like I think Garrett Cole is good enough of a pitcher where, you know, you, you got to defer to him. And I assume that, you know, it isn't just Aaron Boone saying like, you guys pitch to your know, pitch catch together. I There's obviously some player input into it. I think it's tricky because like much with like the AJ Burnett, Jorge Posada, Jose Molina controversy, um, it just, it gets on players' feelings. Like, I think Posada probably more so than Gary because he was a very emotional player. And it's, I'm not saying, again, this is not an easy situation to resolve, but I think in the long run, you know, you're keeping everyone happy, keeping the ace of your staff happy, and um, allowing him to feel most comfortable for his catcher is probably the best outcome. Having said that, you know, again, they need to figure it out where Gary can catch Cole sometimes. Like, that has to happen. This can't be like, we can't dance around this all year till the playoffs. A.J. Burnett in 2009 was 14% better than league average. And we know that his bad starts, he absolutely cratered. 
Garrett Cole this year is 79% better than league average, and his bad starts are like generally pretty good except for that one against Texas. So I... I find it tough to buy, um, and I think that Garrett Cole wants to win, um, and I think that Garrett Cole would understand that Gary Sanchez, who's been almost 50% better than the league average hitter over the last seven weeks, is better than Kyle Higashioka, who's been 79% worse than the league average hitter over the last seven weeks. And I look, I get it, and I don't want to be... The guy who tells Garrett Cole he can't have what he wants or uh, give the impression to Garrett Cole that I'm going to put his performance in jeopardy. But I think Garrett Cole wants to win games, and I think we know what the winning move for the Yankees is behind the plate. Um, and I think it's been it's been quite clear for a while now. And I hope that before the playoffs, as you said, they figure this out because... You can't start Kyle Higashioka in Game One of the World Series. No, you definitely can't, and you you can't start him in any Game One of the playoffs if Gary is hitting like this. You, I mean, again, you really shouldn't start him during the playoffs, but there are going to be off days, et cetera, et cetera. So, looking at this week, two Cole starts coming up. We have Tuesday against the Royals, and then we have Sunday against the Red Sox. And I think the Sunday game is probably one that I could see Higashioka starting because you're going to have two night games and day game after a night game, you know, yada, yada. Um, we know how that works. But tomorrow, put Gary in there. It's against the Royals. You're coming off an off day. Gary should catch. That's, that's where I'm going with this. I think you need to start to work him back in. And especially against a team that, you know, is not the best team. Like you're not gonna, you're you're not gonna tell me that Cole is gonna put up you know a six run outing against the Royals because Gary Sanchez is catching, he's got to be in there, and I, I'm very interested to see what happens. And I, I couldn't agree more. And also, it's the Royals minus Adalberto Mondesi who just went back on the IL minus Andrew Benintendi, um, guys they've depended on in the past like Hunter Dozier are having horrible seasons. I I really don't see any scenario in which you don't start Gary Sanchez. And the key here is that if Higgy starts the first game, then Higgy is starting two games because he would start the first game, Gary would start the second game, and then the third game would be a day game after a night game. So you'd be setting up Kyle Higashioka to start three of the next six games because we assume he'd start the second Cole start in Boston. If you start Gary, then you only have to start Higashioka twice. And frankly, I like that a lot more. Um, And I like it's Kyle Higashioka over the course of his career has produced about what you'd expect a backup catcher to produce. I don't want to be construed as rooting against Kyle Higashioka or wanting him to fail or, you know, giving Kyle Higashioka undue criticism. Kyle Higashioka is what he is. He is a good defensive backup catcher who the best pitcher in the American League really likes to throw to. And that's a good guy to be. And it's a good guy for the Yankees to have. And it was a good guy for the Yankees to have when it was Austin Romine, who was a really good backup catcher. So good, in fact, that he played himself into a starting job. The thing is, what I criticize about Kyle Higashioka is the narrative that he was clearly the guy who the Yankees needed to make the starter. He is older, he is worse offensively, he doesn't throw, he's basically, you know, look, when a guy takes eight years to make it to the majors, there tends to be a reason why he took eight years to make it to the majors. And I don't, I don't mean to disparage Kyle Higashioka in any way. Kyle Higashioka has given the Yankees everything they could have asked for and more. He has exceeded their expectations for a backup catcher, I am sure. And he may have secured himself a job for a while by how much Garrett Cole likes him. But Kyle Higashioka, as you said, cannot be perceived as a game one starter in the playoffs. You, you just can't have it. That's not a competitive thing for a team to do. And whatever it takes over the next 90 games or 91 games to get Garrett Cole comfortable with Gary Sanchez, even if there are some growing pains, that's what needs to happen. Yeah, I I think you're right. I mean, they have the time they have, you know, they have the hot hitting catcher and they they just have to do it. Like bite the bullet and tell Garrett Cole, you know, 
Garrett Cole's a like you said, he wants to win, and he's not going to say, you know, no, I need Higashioka. I think there's a comfort thing, and I think you know they're not gonna they're not gonna make him go cold turkey, but they need to start working him in because in the playoffs, like if Gary's hitting like that, what happened last year will not happen. Like it just won't happen. That wasn't because Garrett Cole liked pitching to Higashioka. It's because Gary was terrible last year, and that's not gonna be the case this year. So I think to kind of wrap this up, we'll be very interested to see how Aaron Boone makes the lineup on Tuesday. I know there's basically everybody on Yankees Twitter is like ferociously awaiting these five o'clock lineup drops now. Uh, I see plenty of people predicting and guessing it. It's actually funny because I don't really ever think I've seen this level of lineup anticipation throughout the years. And that's not just because, you know, the lineup wasn't in flux. I think people are so keyed in on this roster construction thing this year that they are really ready to you know let someone have it when somebody's hitting too high or somebody's hitting too low just an observation um it means the fan base cares and you know we love to see that um but yeah i think we should probably move on to the a's series uh, to touch on the last game in the blue jay series obviously something really cool happened which we're going to come back to um other than that it was another comeback win for the yankees stanton homered to uh break a 4-3 deficit in the top of the seventh and um Chris Gittens tacked on some runs. Urshela had a home run early on. Almost had two home runs. Uh, just a, an all-around great game. And they secured the sweep against uh, the Buffalo Blue Jays. And a really important sweep because if they, you know, the Blue Jays are not going to win the AL East. I'm pretty confident in saying they might stick around for a wild card spot. But it's in the best interest of everyone to just bury this team. They're very flawed. And I just think they're, you know, they can look really good. They can look really bad. But um, just... You know, I think it's better to clear the decks, you know, get get the team starting to, you know, um, work the teams who aren't going to be contenders out of the race. And I think right now that's the Blue Jays. And the Yankees were able to put a little distance between themselves and the Jays just in time for a big weekend series against the A's. So I'm going to turn that to you. Saturday and Sunday's games had a lot worth discussing. I don't know where you want to go first. I know where we're going to end up, and I'm very excited for that. But where what, what should we touch on before we uh, hit the... Uh, the ninth inning in Sunday's game. So I think one thing that we have to discuss in this podcast has obviously been overwhelmingly positive compared to a lot of what we've provided in the last couple weeks. Um, but one thing that merits discussing is after three days in which Aaron Boone made exactly the right pinch hitting call every day with Clint and then Gary and then Gittins, Aaron Boone made a bad call. So, Aaron Boone with um, two outs in the fifth inning of a game that was tied 2-2 two to two at the time brought in Wandy Peralta to replace Jameson Tyone. And Peralta got Matt Olson to fly out. Looked like a good move. Yankees took the lead in the next inning on a home run by Rugnet Odor. Now it's 3-2 going into the sixth. And Boone leaves Wandy out there. And Wandy proceeds to get a couple quick outs and then allows a single and then the shift allows a single. And then Tony Kemp hits a three-run home run. And that ultimately proves to be the difference in the game. Puts the A's up 5-3 and that's it. I don't understand with presumably Green, Britain, and Chapman and Loizaga all available, how is it that Wandy Peralta got the sixth inning and even someone like Lucas Litke didn't? I really think that, you know, it's it seems pretty clear that that decision stood between the Yankees and a sweep. And I don't want to dwell on this, but I do feel like it's probably time to switch the roles of Litke and Peralta and stop giving Peralta high leverage at bats. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think Lucas Lickie has been absolutely nails for the Yankees this year. And it was really surprising because I feel like um, Aaron Boone, you know, does he's, he's shown that Lucas Lickie is in the circle of trust. And it makes me think it was more of a specific inning thing rather than a, um, a matchup or who he trusted more, which is, you know, bang your head against the wall if we're still playing baseball like that in 2021. Um yeah, I don't think every manager has to be perfect, uh, but I think this was such an easy one to get right. And the fact that Aaron Boone chose to bring in Wandy Peralta is frustrating. I think Wandy Peralta, you know, had a little nice run of effectiveness, but 
uh, it's probably time, you know, whenever O'Day's ready or if they want to bring up someone else, probably time to send him down. He does have an option. And again, like I said last week, we don't want Mike Talkman back. Mike Talkman is not doing well. You know, we're not talking about the narrative of Talkman's doing great and Peralta is sucking. They're both sucking. Talkman just had a few good moments. So my weekly Mike Talkman is not as good as you think he is rant is over. But yeah, it, it was tough to see, especially when, you know, uh, encouraging game from DJ and uh, big home run by Odor wasted just because Boone pushed the wrong button. Um frustrating i think that's you know one of those things that you're just you can't make that decision yeah that's the way to sum it up so move on to saturday and it looks like the series is lost domingo herman goes out and actually looks pretty good for a while you know goes uh through the fifth inning he's only or sorry through the fourth inning he's only given up one run and it was a um or rather two runs on two solo home runs, one to Tony Kemp, who is a Yankee killer now because why not, and the other to Matt Chapman, who's having a down offensive year, but like you're not going to get through this whole series without Matt Chapman doing some damage. He's just too good a player. We go to the fifth inning, and Herman just falls apart. I mean, he goes single, single, walk, single against Andrews, Canna, Kemp, and Olsen, and suddenly it goes from a 2-1 game to a 4-1 game, and he hasn't gotten an out. So then Boone, you know, now he's losing by three runs and the bullpen needs to get 15 outs. Like, what do you do? So Boone doesn't really have a choice. He can't bring in, you know, a high leverage guy with runners on first and third and nobody out in a three run game in the fifth inning. And he goes to Nestor Cortez and oh my God. Nestor Cortez was phenomenal. Like, we cannot go through this podcast without tipping our caps to Nestor Cortez, who came in with runners on first and third, stuck, struck out Ramon Laureano, struck out Matt Chapman, got Sean Murphy to fly out to right center, and then pitched two more scoreless innings on top of that. So, Nestor Cortez pitches the fifth, sixth, and seventh, just allows a hit and a walk. Um, got a couple of huge high leverage outs, obviously all three outs in the fifth, and then um, got Matt Chapman to strike out swinging with two guys on uh, with the A's up 4-2 in the seventh, and that's what kicked off the Yankees' comeback. Clint leads off the seven with a double. Judge singles him home. They take out Birch Smith, who like, what the hell was Birch Smith doing in this game? I called it out in the series recap. Like, is Birch Smith really your high leverage reliever? Like, up two in the seventh inning, you go to Birch Smith? Birch Smith is terrible. And, like, I feel bad. Like, I get that the A's are trying to do some stuff with Lazardo and, you know, Frankie Montas and figure out their, like, young arms. But... They went to Birch Smith and Yusmero Petit, and those guys allowed the Yankees to get within a run, and then Jesus Lazardo came in, and Gio Urshela, who had a piece of his bat in his eye, hits uh, a go-ahead home run. I mean, it's... And then Sergio Romo has to replace the Holy Lizard, Jesus Lazardo, because Lazardo was woefully ineffective and LeMahieu drives in some insurance runs. I mean, it was just like a comedy of errors from the A's bullpen, and Bob Melvin is renowned as this great manager, but like, I can't tell if he just doesn't have weapons out there or if he didn't know how to match up with this lineup or what it was, but, you know, Gary hit a bomb off of Chris Bassett who had been untouchable for much of the game. Uh, and once the Yankees got Bassett out of the game, it was a hit parade. And I I was shocked. Um, but I just, I had no idea how to react to the A's bullpen being so woefully ineffective. Yeah, no, I found that very interesting too. I mean, we all know Liam Hendricks left to uh, head to... Um, head to Chicago in the offseason. And honestly, I'm really not sure how much of the A's bullpen I could have told you before the game. Um, 
And I think it was just, you know, it was an ineffective A's bullpen, but it was some good situational hitting for the Yankees. And like I said before, that was the big thing this week. It was when the big spots, they were getting the hits that they needed to get. Like Geo's home run, like DJ's tack on single. It was just a different, um, and obviously the comeback to get to that point, it was just a different um, spirit of this team that I think we've seen before. And the combination of poor A's pitching and good Yankees at bats was really fun to watch. It was it was one of those games that just made you feel like you're watching a different Yankees team. Um, I hope we associate that characteristic with this Yankees team soon. But uh, a team in the past that you know comes back against uh, poor pitching, like it's just easy, and that's you know something I really appreciate after the first few months of this year. Like really appreciate. It. Absolutely. And on the topic of. Um... High leverage at bats. I know I shouted out, uh, you know, not only the Yankees for their situational hitting, as you just mentioned, but shouted out Nestor Cortez for his handling of some high leverage at bats. Um, Aroldis Chapman was facing Matt Chapman with two runners on and two outs in the ninth, and Aroldis Chapman had had enough baseball for the day. Uh, <laughs> after after walking Mark Canna and then. Um, getting some bad calls that didn't ultimately hurt him against Jed Lowry uh, and then allowing kind of some cheap singles, uh, one defensive misplay for Matt Olson, and then just a single through the vacated hole by Loriano. Aroldis Chapman faced Matt Chapman, and it was just sometimes you watch an Aroldis Chapman uh, at bat, and it's just unfair. Um and that, that's what this was. He threw him three straight fastballs, all in the strike zone. Uh, one of them was 103.4 miles an hour, which was the fastest pitch thrown in more than two years in Major League Baseball, and just blew him away. And that's how the game ended. And that would be a pretty cool way for the game to end, if not for the way that Sunday's game ended. But in order for Sunday's game to end up... Uh, you know, to set up its incredible ending, Gary Sanchez had to do some work. The Yankees only got three hits on Sunday. Two doubles by Gary Sanchez and a double by DJ LeMayhew. Uh, for those of you who for some reason still buy into the myth that uh, opposite field Gary is the best Gary, both of these doubles were to right center field. And the second of the two off Sean Manaya, who had been absolutely untouchable, obviously he only allowed three hits, gave the Yankees a two-run lead to overcome the hole that they were in after Matt Olson's first inning solo shot. And Whipple, I'm just going to pass it off to you to talk about how the Yankees sealed this series win. All right, so we head to the ninth inning. Yankees up 2-1. to one. Chapman comes in, and it's wild Chapman. It's Chapman can't find the strike zone. We've seen this before, not as much this year, but you know he walks first two batters. He is not throwing strikes. This isn't like Saturday. He is just not hitting the zone. And we later learned he had a broken fingernail. Um, so, you know, a little bit of an explanation. But they, uh, our, our friend Wandy Peralta and Luis Sessa were warming up in quite a hurry. There was a big mound conference. And it just seemed like one of those games that was going to go to the ninth inning tied or the Yankees were going to go to the ninth inning trailing. This was not going to end easily. And then on a 1-0 pitch, it ended very easily as for some insane reason and... It, I honestly, I was telling Will before, this was pr probably the most excited I've been by a Yankees play in quite some time because it was really a walk-off triple play. I have no other way to describe it. One, two, three, game over. Yankees win two to one. And it was just incredible. It was everybody, nobody expected it. And everyone was just losing their minds. And what a way for the game to end. And here's where we have to mention that it wasn't their you know, first triple play of the year. It wasn't their first triple play of the month. It wasn't their first triple play of the week. It wasn't their first triple play in the last four days because in the previous series against Buffalo, uh, or in Buffalo, the Yankees nailed the Blue Jays on a triple play that involved some pretty bad base running on the Blue Jays' parts. Um, if you want to watch the video of that, head to our series recap or Bomber Bits today, I discussed it. Uh, mostly catching the Blue Jays, trying to take some extra bases, but... It, the fact of the matter is the Yankees have now turned three triple plays in less than a month or about a month. And that ties the major league record for most triple plays in a season only done seven times. It was an absolutely wild ending. You can see in the video, Miguel Andujar is standing uh, down the first baseline, just jumping up and down. Uh, DJ LeMay, who shows no emotion, is elated. He's jumping up and down. 
I think it was one of the craziest things that I've seen on a baseball field. Um, and maybe in its own context, if that was the first triple play they had all year, it was the third one. I mean, what is this team? Is this team a no-hitters and triple plays team? I, I don't understand how this happens. I don't understand if this is the baseball god saying, hey, you know, you got up all your bad defensive plays early. I mean, in April, we were talking about Glaber Torres couldn't connect to Jay Bruce on throws in the ninth inning. Now we're talking about multiple triple plays in a week. I just have no way to describe it except saying that is baseball season. And boy, what a way to end the series, seal the series win, and head into the off day. What are your, give me some triple, well, actually, let me read you just some quick triple play stats too. So, like I said, it was the first time the Yankees had turned multiple triple plays in the season, and the first team to, to turn three triple plays since the 2016 White Sox, setting the major league record. They didn't turn a triple play from 1968 to 2010, and now they've done three in a year. This was also the first walk-off triple play since 2009 uh, when Eric Bruntlett of the Phillies turned an unassisted triple play to end the game against the Mets. So if you want to check that out, that's another wild ending. Go to Bomber Bits. Definitely worth a watch. And possibly the best triple play stat. And here we just have to say, we're sorry, Diamondbacks fans. This one's going to hurt a little bit. Since May 21st, the Yankees have turned three triple plays and the Arizona Diamondbacks have won two baseball games. So... Tell Marte, uh, I think it's time to book your flight tickets to New York. Ooh, that's a that's a tough one. Um, yeah, I think uh, just a few triple play thoughts. First, the Yankees have turned three triple plays this year, two with Aroldis Chapman on the mound. And the crazy part of that is we're in the lowest contact year of all time, the fewest balls in play. And we're talking about the pitcher on the Yankees who allows fewer balls in play than anyone else, maybe than anyone else in the major leagues. And he's the guy who's on the mound for two of the three triple plays that the Yankees have turned, the two conventional triple plays that they turned. That is that's that's insane to me. I think that's kind of an underplayed aspect of this is that in the lowest contact year of all time, the lowest contact guy in the league, basically. Uh, has two triple plays turned behind him. That's insane. And then I think also what you have to uh, factor into this is the last time that a triple play ended a game in New York, the Yankees won the World Series. That Eric Bruntlett triple play was against the Mets at Citi Field in 2009. What happened that year? The Yankees won the World Series. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, that's all the proof we need. Um but yeah, no, it, it's unbelievable. This team went 42 years without turning a triple play at one point recently and now has tied the record for triple plays in a season in just 71 games. It, what is insane is that if I come on the pod today and said, let's talk about the triple play, you would say, which one? I mean, I just, I can't <laughs> comprehend this. It, it is absolutely that, incredible. What a way to, what a way to end the week. It really was. It was a, a perfect way to cap off a near perfect week. The Yankees went five and one. The World Series is back on. It's hot, Gary Summer. It's in full effect. The weather warmed up, and so did our guy. And Whipple, um, you know, it was also Father's Day weekend, and uh, you know, you and I are both, uh, you know, our interests in Yankees baseball comes significantly from our dads. Um, and there is also a lot of great father-son history in baseball. Do you have anything you want to say about either of those things? Uh, well, I think um, one one thing I'll say about father-son history in baseball is um, I think it's pretty cool right now that we're seeing a lot of sons of uh, Major League Baseball players just absolutely crush it at the big league level. I mean, Vlad Guerrero Jr., we have um, basically the whole Blue Jays team, Kevin Biggio, Bo Bichette. Like, that's a, a trio of sons of baseball players who are playing at a pretty high level. And it, it just follows the, the story tradition of having a father-son uh, combo. In, um, and if you, you know, if you go look it up, um, the sons are actually usually better than the dads. So Vlad Jr. is on his way to the Hall of Fame, unfortunately. But the Blue Jays won't win any division titles in the next 20 years. So it's all good. Um, so I guess in relation to my own dad, he was someone who basically shaped me as a Yankees fan. Uh, growing up, I you know he he had a big Yankees sticker on his car. He painted our backyard with the Yankees logo uh, in the wiffle ball field we all played on. Uh, you know I was dressed in Yankees jerseys from a young age. My basement is just covered in memorabilia, and 
in 2009, he took me to the World Series and game one, and that was like one of the first really uh, resonant moments for me as a Yankees fan. Um, something that really stuck with me, just remembering what that was like. And, you know, that year was so exciting for everyone. And that just kind of springboarded me into being a more passionate fan after being more of a passive fan for the first 10 years. And some of my fondest memories are going to games with my dad. Uh, the last thing I did before the pandemic actually was go down to spring training with him for three three games. And that was just one of the most fun trips I've ever had and definitely something I'm looking forward to doing. But um, yeah, I, I think the, the, the best thing that I can say about my dad's uh, baseball fandom is that it's all consuming. I mean, you know, my dad will anything that he could slap a Yankees logo on or bring a New York Yankees uh, related thing into the conversation, he would do it. And I, I think that's just so, so cool to, you know, have someone who, who is that much of an influence in such a positive way in your life for other reasons, but then also most importantly for baseball fandom. So yeah, I, I think that uh, the, the last thing I'll say also about that is I was watching Gary Sanchez's RBI double with him. Um, and he, he was, he was, he wasn't as big on Gary Sanchez as we were, but when Gary Sanchez hit the double, he said, I was wrong and I'm a Gary Sanchez fan now. So, uh, Doug Whipple, when you come on the pod, uh, you know, we expect that you'll be you know signing up for your spot on the Gary Sanchez bandwagon and we're going to all ride it to the world series. But yeah, I think that my dad is definitely the most important part of me being a Yankees fan for sure. So, yeah, I think the, the, the best way to sum that up is Doug Whipple come on the pod. Uh, we've been waiting. Exactly. Uh, everyone's asking for it. Uh, everyone was responding to my tweet about how good Gary Sanchez has been for the last three weeks by saying Doug Whipple come on the pod. So uh, do it uh, on my end. Um, you know, I just want to highlight, I think, some additional sons of great baseball players who turned out to be even greater you know in the mold of a Bo Bichette or of Ladd Jr. or whoever it might be um I want to start with Dale Barra um obviously Yogi Berra famously a, a really good catcher won a ton of championships but you know he would tell you to his last day that uh you know he didn't compare at all to to the great Dale Barra uh we got Tony Gwynn Jr. Uh, Tony Gwynn Jr., you know, a little bit of a different skill set than his dad, but um, widely acknowledged to be the better player. Um, you know, there, there are guys who come along like this every so often. You got um, Mariano Rivera Jr., who was drafted by the Yankees a few years back and uh, has since gone on to, you know, set all kinds of records uh, in in pitching in the major leagues. Um, now, obviously, <laughs> I'm only joking and I was running out of guys, but... Um, there really is a great father-son tradition in Major League Baseball. I think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention the Griffies. Um, Ken Griffey Jr., of course, you know, following in the footsteps of quite a good player to uh, become, you know, one of the greatest of all times. Barry Bonds, of course, did the same thing. Bobby Bonds was a, a very good major leaguer. Um, I am eagerly awaiting the arrival of Jack Leiter, uh, I think I think he's going to be really exciting. I wish he would have signed with the Yankees a couple years back when they drafted him, but um, you know it's hard to blame a talented young pitcher for going to Vanderbilt, and he's become basically the best college player on the planet. I think he's really exciting, uh, and we had obviously been hearing about him for a while as Yankees fans in the Northeast with Al Leiter's connection to the Yes Network. Um, Jack Leiter, I, I think, is someone to be really excited about. And then on the topic of just, you know, baseball and my dad, my earliest memories of baseball, like, and really knowing or caring about it are actually from the 2001 World Series. Um, and I didn't watch much of it because I had a bedtime because I was five. But... um <laughs> I, I remember, you know, I would I would ask my dad in the morning how it went and, uh, you know, I knew they were going to game seven and that if they just won, then they'd win the World Series. And I woke up the next morning and found out that they lost and I cried and it was awful. But, um, you know, from a very, very young age, just as, uh, you know, his dad and primarily his grandfather did for him, my dad instilled being a Yankees fan in me, uh, as you heard on the inaugural edition of Dad Take or Bad Take. And, um, you know, we watch a lot of games together uh, and it just just have a great time with it. And 
He took me to Old Timers Day uh, in 2009. That was really cool. Uh, he took me to a Yankees-Red Sox game when I was really young. At Fenway, we saw Jorge Posada hit a triple. That was awesome. Um, so we just have a lot of great memories of watching the Yankees together. I remember watching the uh, the A-Rod Veritek fight uh, in Boston with him on TV. Um, and, you know, it's something, something that we've always done to kind of hang out together and have a good time. Something that, uh, you know, goes back a long way for him and now does for me as well. So, uh, you know, a good Father's Day weekend of baseball to watch for sure. So Whipple, uh, you know, just want to run through, we put up a lot of content on the old yankeesfiles.com this week. We had the series recap of the Blue Jays series, which you did a great job with. Um, you know, I, I, I think you're really on a roll with these series recaps. You had the great Aroldis Chapman, uh, G-Man Choi breakdown in a prior one. And, uh, you know, this was, this was no exception. This was great work. Uh, and I think everyone should go check that out. We got bomber bits that went up today. Uh, Monday we had on Sunday, the recap of the A series, which is basically just one big homage to hot Gary summer. Um, and like some probably some unnecessary piling on of Birch Smith, I won't lie. Um, but look, like when you're Birch Smith, these things happen to you. Uh, and we'll have a preview of the Royals series going up tomorrow. So a ton of stuff on YankeesFiles.com for you guys to check out. And Whipple, you know that every week we end this podcast by discussing our confidence in the New York Yankees. So just tell me where you're at with this team. So as um, I'm sure you're going to echo, confidence is back up. And again, it's not for the reason that they won games. They can win games all they want. But the way they won is something that really instills a lot of confidence in, in me and I think a lot of fans. And um, I'm, at, I'm at a 7.5. I think I was back at a 6 or a 6.5 last week. Probably a 6 because last week was really bad um, or the previous week. I'm at a 7.5. This was a week that really inspired confidence in me as a fan. I think the way they won was great. I think some of their wins were easier than others, but they all had the comeback element to them, which is you know all, all you'd want to see because not every game is going to go perfectly, and you have to figure out a way to get it done when it doesn't go perfectly. And the Yankees did just that, and they turned two triple plays. So how awesome is that? That makes me super confident as a fan. Um, they get another crack at the Red Sox this week, and we can't say enough how big that is because eventually, you know, you can say they're going to play the Red Sox a bunch more times. This is the bunch of more times are coming up. They play the Red Sox this week, and then they play them twice, two consecutive weekends in July. So over the next few weeks, they're going to have nine, ten games against the Red Sox. Um, I will actually be at Friday night's game. I am going to the game with uh, a large number of Red Sox fans. Uh, I'm going to be wearing my Garrett Cole jersey. I am going to imbibe and have some drinks and participate in some heckling of Boston fans. And uh, when the Yankees win, I will try not to be hurt by anyone, but I will certainly be parading through Lansdowne Street, blasting New York, New York, because that's just what you do in hot Gary summer. That's what it's all about. Um, and I'm ready to go. You know, if the Yankees can win this series against the Red Sox, I'm ready to shoot the confidence back up even more. I'm just that excited about how things are going right now. Well, I love it. And I mean, that's that's commitment to the blog right there. There there aren't other blogs that are doing this for you. Um, you know, we're we're a blog of the people. We don't have media credentials. You know, Whipple's not going to be up there in the press box. Whipple's going to be, you know, out among the common men and uh the common men in Boston are dangerous. Um, and, you know, Whipple's just going to be expressing himself in the ways that he sees fit and, you know, supporting his team. And he deserves to be able to do that without, um, you know, fear of harm. But he's putting that on the line for you, the listener, and you, the reader. And, uh, you know, I think, I think that's a really commendable thing. As far as my confidence, I'm back up to eight. Uh, this team's good. Like, there's there's just no other way around it. Like, people love to be in our mentions on Twitter telling me this is, like, an average team or something, as if I'm going to believe that. This is a good team. You don't have, like, Garrett Cole in this lineup and this bullpen and apparently this version of Jordan Montgomery and just be an average team. It, it, do, it doesn't happen. It doesn't exist. Uh, they keep beating good teams. They're going to beat up on the Royals. They're going to beat up on the Red Sox. We're at an 8. We're going to be at a 10 next week. I love the New York Yankees. You love the New York Yankees. Do you have any parting shots? Yes. I have two things to say. 
One, if you are a Yankees fan in Boston who is going to Friday's game, or if you're going to be in the Fenway area beforehand, DM us. I will come find you. We will we'll commiserate. We, we all have to stick together. Super important. The other thing is I promise that if the Yankees win, I'm going to go on I, w- I will record a video. I might be drunk. I'm not promising anything, but I will play. I will actually play New York, New York, and sing along. I don't know how long it's going to be. Um, I might get attacked. I might get my phone broken. But I promise that if that happens, I'm going to deliver content to the people like the people I've never seen. So Hot Gary Summer is going to be raging on Friday if the Yankees win. Well, Whipple, there's no better way to round it off than that. You're a man of the people. You're going out there and doing this for the readers and for the listeners. It's Hot Gary Summer. We'll be back next week. Let's go Yankees.